Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. How historically has India conceived of its place in Asian geopolitics? Which ideas, assumptions and aspirations have shaped and guided Indian foreign policy since independence three quarters of a century ago? These are some of the questions today's guest, Ambassador Shivshankar Menon, explores at length in his new book, India and Asian Geopolitics, The Past, Present, published last year by Brookings Institution Press. Ambassador Shivshankar Menon is a distinguished fellow at the Center for Social and Economic Progress in New Delhi and a visiting professor at Ashoka University. He has had a long and distinguished career in public service, having served as India's ambassador to Israel and to China, as High Commissioner to Sri Lanka and Pakistan, as Foreign Secretary from 2006 to 2009, and as National Security Advisor from 2010 to 2014. He is also the author of Choices Inside the Making of Indian Foreign Policy, which was published in 2016. And in 2010, he was chosen by Foreign Policy Magazine as one of the world's top 100 global thinkers. Ambassador Menon, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to, I'd like to begin our conversation today by picking up on, a, on an aspect of the book, which I found very interesting right from the outset, which is the historical approach in the book. And we should, ex we should say for, for the listeners, the first part is largely chronological. Uh, it kind of goes through the sweep of uh, Indian history, especially since uh, since independence. And the second part is more is more thematic. But right right in the introduction, you have a very interesting uh, remark, which is that when you in your, in the course of your lectures, when you when you teach students, sometimes it it um, it occurs that you'll refer, for example, to Mrs. Gandhi, meaning Indira Gandhi. And your your your, <laughs> your students automatically assume you're referring to the one that they know, which is Sonia Gandhi, right? Exactly. I have students who are all born in this century, <laughs> right? And that's when it hit me that many of the things that I take for granted and assume in the environment mm -hmm. that they probably don't even see. Right. Yes. You you write the following. And I'm just going to read it for the listeners. It is sobering to realize that the events that frame your conscious life have already faded into the fog of history. Uh, which is a, a very, very, I think, perceptive and poignant remark about, uh, you know, the, the natural evolution of, of a human life. But um, t tell us a little bit why you, you felt that it was important to, to structure at least the first part of this book chronologically, the, the importance of a, of a historical approach in, in uh, understanding India's place in the world and in Asia. Well, two reasons. One was, I think, we're in a time where there's such information overload that there's a tendency to, to sort of erase the past, forget the past. Mm -hmm. And yet my students, were, who were all born in this century, were very interested in what had happened in, and this is really contemporary history, because what I was, what my, I teach them in the course is really India's foreign policy, India and Asia since independence in 1947. Mm -hmm. But they were very interested in it. So I thought maybe if they're interested, there must be others who might be interested as well. And, so I thought it worth putting down. But also because I do think that the history is fundamental to in determining not just how we perceive the world, but how we act, actually. The history we tell ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, which is an imperfect map of the past. I mean, it's not, there's no such thing as absolute history. Yeah. Uh, I think that 
that actually affects the way we see things, the way we perceive them, the way we react to them. Uh, everybody uses historical analogy all the time. We use words like Munich, and we all have an idea of Finlandization. You know, these are mm -hmm. terms in common use. So, uh, so I thought it worth putting down what at least I and maybe my generation see and think of of India's dealings with Asia, because that was the other part of it that that worried me. That I think there's such a focus in Indian. Uh, thinking on the major powers, on the U.S., on China, and so on, that I think we, we forget that our home is in Asia and that Asia is a very complex place and has actually determined a lot of what we do and uh, much of our prosperity or, and our security threats, all that actually arise within Asia. So Asian geopolitics have been very important to us. And that's why I, I, I wrote the book the way that way i did yes yes and and in fact that's a, that's a point that you, you make throughout the book which is that asia is a is a very large and complicated place right and you have to think about mm -hmm. it as, as made up of, of, of various zones but uh, i'll just make a tangential remark about what you said about um there not being any absolute history because i just started reading a collection of primary documents about the july crisis 1914 mm -hmm. and, and that reminded me you know yeah a hundred years <laughs> later you know we're still <laughs> We're still yeah, debating. We're still grappling with the same problems. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's incredible. Yeah. Um, there, there's something else uh, I want to ask you about related to, to this topic, which is that the subtitle, again, uh, of the book for the listeners is, uh, the, the, the full title is India and Asian Geopolitics, the Past, Comma, Present. And that struck me because, of course, in a way, you would expect that to be a, a kind of triptych, right? The past, present, and future. But mm -hmm. so I'm, that I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that is a deliberate omission. If so, tell us a little bit about uh, what you were thinking there. Well, I'm, I'm no prophet, and I, I don't want to try and <laughs> prophesy what the future holds for us. Fair uh, enough. I'm not even an astrologer. So. But <laughs> I do think that uh, the past does determine our present, and that we forget it at risk to ourselves. So that's really why the past present. And the book is also structured, as you said, accordingly. I mean, the first section is really about the past leading up to the present, and then a description of the present and some of the themes that I think are going to determine our future, which the rise of China, of course, but the way India has transformed itself, the way the center of global geopolitics and economics actually has come to Asia again after two, three centuries. Uh, and I try and look at, at where that is and what sort of Asia we're forming. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answers. It seems to me there are th at least three possible Asian futures uh, which we are heading for. And, and I go into that in some detail, whether it's going to be an Asia dominated by one power, whether it's China or the US, whose rivalry now is the main geopolitical fault line, or whether it's going to be a multipolar, truly sort of early 19th century concert of Europe type of Asia, or whether we revert to the historical pattern, which is really of multiverses, mm -hmm. where we trade, interact, exchange ideas, goods, etc. But basically where security and politics were localized and increasingly locally driven in three big spheres, in a sort of East Asian sphere, which was centered on China and the Indian Ocean region, where India was central 
And then in West Asia, where there were several powerful regional powers, Persia, Turkey at various times, and today it's Israel. So, and or whether we, and frankly, it's very hard to say which way we're going. Uh, I do believe that a single power-centered Asia is unlikely. And I'm not even sure that a multipolar Asia is very, very stable. Uh, but that's an unfashionable view, I know. <laughs> somehow, suddenly, multipolarity seems to have become everybody's favorite goal or description of the present, which I don't think is true. For me, today, Asia is between orders. Mm -hmm. And when we still haven't settled, we don't have a settled order because the balance of power is changing almost every day before our eyes. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that's a long answer to, to a straightforward <laughs> question. No, no, very, very interesting. That, that reminds me of Gramsci's famous phrase, right, about the, the future not yet being born and, and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah. Let, let me... Let me begin but there, obviously there, there's a lot in the book and we, we can't cover everything but I'd like to begin sort of still with the with the in the beginning so to speak in, in, the, in when we we're still in the colonial era mm -hmm. and you explain in the book that the British structured their understanding of India which of course for them was was absolutely critical in terms of an inner ring and an outer ring um, and, and we yes. should perhaps explain for the listeners the the inner ring was Nepal Bhutan and, and Sikkim, which is Sikkim is now part of India, but, but you know, back then was, uh, I guess, semi-independent. Um, and an outer ring consisting of, of Persia, or what we now think of as Iran, Afghanistan, Tibet, to keep the Russians out, uh, and, or Afghanistan also to keep the Russians out, actually, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Siam, which, is, which we now think of as Thailand. Um, could you explain for, for, for us, for the listeners, what the legacy of this way of thinking about India was? Well, the way the British saw it as an empire and an expanding empire, uh, as long as they were an expanding empire, let's say until certainly until the Boer, Boer War, they saw it as in terms of zones of decreasing influence and control. I mean, there was an area, a core area, about one third of India, of the Indian subcontinent, which they actually ruled directly, where, where British Indian laws applied and were enforced by them. Mm -hmm. Then there was a zone where actually they left it to local custom, tradition, whoever, local authorities, so long as they accepted the paramountcy of Britain, the suzerainty, as it were, and overall sovereignty of Britain. But they didn't interfere in the actual running of these areas. Uh, but they did have troops of their own stationed there, and they controlled the means of communication, which was the highways, the railways, and telegraph, and so on. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, they had, as you said, the inner ring of uh, areas which were treated as though they were, well, they called them native states, um, who had their own maharajas and rulers and so on, but where no outside influence was permitted, where they would react, respond, and Afghanistan was an area that actually fell on both sides of that line because mm -hmm. they intervened thrice, not very successfully, but finally managed to get a regime after the 1870s which suited them, which at least maintained neutrality between them and, and the Russians and was clever enough to balance them both, but kept foreign troops out, which from the British point of view, served for the continental defense of, of India. And beyond that was a ring of states where they would maximize their influence, Persia, where finally the only solution they had was to 
actually agree in 1907 with the Russians on a literally a creation, a partition of, of Persia, as it were, by creating spheres of influence, parts which would be under Russian influence and parts where British influence would prevail. Mm-hmm. And, and they did that, as you said, all the way to Siam around India. But they could do this on the continent because they had absolute mastery of the sea, the Royal Navy. Even though, because of the open geography of the Indian Ocean, at no stage under Pax Britannica could the Royal Navy actually control all 10 of the choke points around the Indian Ocean, which is one reason why the Indian Ocean, unlike the near seas, you know, or the closed seas like the Mediterranean, Black Sea, South China Sea, has not been a battle space in history. It's been a space for trade migration. But once, but because the British had overall dominance throughout this, what we now call the Indo-Pacific, it was possible for Britain to actually enforce a system like this. And the keys to India, as they used to call it, were, of course, Suez, Cape of Good Hope, uh, and which control the maritime sea routes, and also the telegraph cables and and so on, which which became so important to empire later, in the later days. Uh, but the sea was handled out of London, because the sea was an in imperial interest, and maritime security was therefore always handled out of London. The British government of India didn't have much to do with that. In fact, they were responsible for the land armies and the land borders, and the security, continental security of India. Mm-hmm. And given that, what the inheritance of the government of India, which was the successor state to the British Raj in India, uh, frankly, was a degree of sea blindness. And India's own position at independence in '47 changed drastically, it could no longer follow this imperial scheme for the defense of India for three reasons. The first, of course, is the withdrawal of the Royal Navy and the, of the maritime security that the Royal Navy provided. Secondly, was the creation of Pakistan mm-hmm. to, on India's western flank, out of part of the subcontinent, which became independent. India might have got independence from the British, but Pakistan got independence from India. And to a very great extent, the building of Pakistani identity and nationalism, uh, therefore, was hostile to India mm-hmm. intrinsically. Yeah. And there was a problem there. So India was cut off on land from West Asia, which traditionally it had very close and pretty, and not just trading, but other relationships with, whether it was Persia or, or the Gulf, uh, and didn't, dom- didn't control the sea anymore. And the third thing that had happened was that China occupied Tibet. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, India actually had Chinese troops on a border, had a border with China. Before that, we'd had a border with Tibet, which is a very different thing from having a border with a newly rising, as Mao Zedong said in 49, China has stood up. uh, And when he founded the People's Republic. And this was... uh, a state formed by a party which was originally an army. And they saw their mission as being re-putting China together again. And they saw this historical mission of, of 
joining Xinjiang, Tibet, Mongolia, etc., to the motherland. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, we had uh, a border with them. We thought we had a boundary because we had agreements or at least custom and traditional arrangements with the Tibetans, which had worked for centuries. But that's not how Beijing saw it, not how the People's Republic saw it. And so in a fundamental way, the geopolitics of independent India in Asia were very different from what the Raj did. But there is another consequence, apart from sea blindness and the changed geopolitical circumstances of India after independence. You know, the British wrote a version of Indian history which justified their own presence. So they wrote Indian history uh, as a long series of foreign invaders who came, took over India, and ran it. And they saw most of these, of course, as coming from the Northwest. And this was a history divided by religion for the simple reason that this justified what the British were doing to divide and rule. In fact, what ultimately justified the creation of Pakistan as a separate state. Uh, And it was a very different version of history from what either Indians had known before or what was actually true because it ignored the entire history of India's prosperity, its advances, of maritime India. I mean, if you look at the real history of India, the reason why India accounted for 25% of world industrial product in uh, as late as 1850 uh, was because, as late as 1750, uh, was because of maritime India, from Gujarat through Malabar through what is now Tamil Nadu, Coromandel Coast, up to the East Coast, to Bengal. Uh, And those were the parts that actually dealt with the rest of the world and were the most advanced and accounted for India's prosperity. But of course, that's not the history that the British wanted Indians to remember. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, uh, there, there are still Indians, by the way, who believe that, who still divide Indian history by religion, by, into a Hindu and Muslim and uh, modern period, as it were. Yes. But uh, so the, the colonial period did leave marks and influences which, which affect our behavior to this day, actually. Yeah, and absolutely. affects the way people think about India and Asia. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ironic things, actually. I mean, we'll, we'll come to this later, but uh, just since we're on the topic, it's one of the ironic things, right, that precisely those who who are most obsessed with a kind of reconstruction of the Indian Indian past, which glorifies basically primarily uh, the Hindu side of Indian history. Mm-hmm. That itself is not, uh, as it were, an indigenous version of Indian history, right? That, that itself was... All. In fact, that is the amazing thing, that, that they use a, actually a late 19th century European version of history yes, yes, yes. Uh, with uh, race and religion as its primary units, mm-hmm. and try and apply it to, to Indian history, and therefore come up with rather unfortunate results. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that makes me think of um, 
you know, not nowadays, academic historians maybe um, despair of how many people read their books. But if you want, you know, faith <laughs> in the long run, then history books matter. <laughs> you know, it may, there it is. There it is. Exactly. You just got to wait. You just got to wait a couple read, of centuries. But actually follow what they say if you wait <laughs> for long enough. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so we, we've already touched on um, the Chinese annexation of Tibet, which we mentioned for the listeners happened in in 1950, interestingly, uh, you you say in the book that it was on the same day that China expressed support for North Korea, which of course was mm-hmm. was having trouble with its uh, little invasion plan in in uh, what is what is now um, what is now South Korea. Now that of course set the or, or laid the foundation, so to speak, for for what will eventually become uh, ultimately a clash in in, in 1962 mm-hmm. um, with China. Yeah. How did that give us a sense um, of, of how that how we went from a situation where India and, and China have a direct uh, border for the for the first time, as you mentioned, to this complete collapse in in understanding of each other's position and ultimately an, an armed conflict, albeit a, a relatively brief one? Well, I think the, the proximate cause was the fact that China disputed the version of the boundary that we thought we had inherited. And that we thought we had proved in talks with the Chinese by sharing evidence. Or, and the Indian and Chinese evidence was actually put together by the officials and published in 1960-61 in a report of the officials. We were also ready to go to the International Court of Justice. We were so confident in our case. Mm. But then we were led by lawyers and the Chinese were led by soldiers. Uh, And I think what they chose to do was, during the 50s, to try and establish on the ground as much control as they could of the areas that they claimed. And when they couldn't, uh, in fairly sizable chunks, because the dispute is almost 138,000 square kilometers, Mm -hmm. and which is about 90,000 square kilometers in the eastern sector, which the Chinese claim, but is under Indian control, and about 38,000 square kilometers in the west, which the Chinese have actually occupied through the 50s. In the 60s, when that didn't work, but when you add to that, that provided the kindling. But the real spark seems to have been what happened in Tibet, because the Chinese had real trouble imposing control on Tibet. There was Tibet was up in arms against the Chinese occupation by 1956. There was a rebellion going on in eastern Tibet in parts of what is now Sichuan and Tibet, the Tibet Autonomous Region. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dalai Lama, when he visited India in '56 for the 2500th anniversary of the Buddha's uh, birth, he actually spent about six months traveling around the Buddhist sites in India and then at the end told us that he didn't want to go home. And Chuanlai came running post-haste three times in, in a month uh, to try and persuade him to come home. because they And finally did make all kinds of promises about Tibetan autonomy and that Tibet would be allowed to run its own internal affairs and so on. Mm-hmm. And so the Dalai Lama went back. But by 1959, it was quite clear that those promises were not kept, that China was trying to impose a socialist system on Tibet, and the Tibetan people were in mass revolt. There were refugees coming across the border uh, into India. And finally, in March, the Dalai Lama himself 
fled Tibet and came to exile in India. Mm-hmm. So from and in his arguments to the Politburo, justifying the war uh, in the build-up, Mao Zedong consistently used an Indian threat to separate Tibet from the motherland, as he said. And I think he was quite quite uh, convinced of this. I, do, I don't think this was just a pretext. Mm, mm-hmm. He actually believed it. Well, they had actually lost control of large parts of Tibet at that time. And I think the war was meant to stop that, stop Indian and actually U.S. assistance to the Tibetan guerrillas, which was secondary, by the way, to, to what was going on, and, uh, and really didn't determine the outcome. Uh, but they faced Tibetan armed Tibetan resistance until, well, Kissinger visited China in 1971 and the Nixon visit which is when finally it all stopped and the last bunch of guerrillas were actually hunted down by the PLA and the Nepalese army together. So I think it's a combination of the boundary, Tibet, and also an increasingly xenophobic and almost paranoid mindset. But you know, like Shamir used to say, even paranoids have real enemies. It's just a question of which ones, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And I think a lot of his enemies were actually internal. Apart from the Tibetans, you know, after the Great Leap Forward in 1959, their internal situation was was quite disastrous. They lost over 30 million people to a famine that communization had had caused. So, uh, and the rest of the leadership eased Mao out of power. And in effect, put him up on the mantelpiece. And while they went around the business of restoring the economy and and getting people back to normal living. And I think the war on India was part of his comeback Mm -hmm. and part of the turn to the left, uh, which ended up in the Cultural Revolution, when all these other leaders who he had put him on the shelf, he then got his revenge on them and used the Red Guards and the others against them. So... So I think it was a combination of domestic politics in China, Mao's own comeback, uh, Tibet, the boundary. Uh, uh, it was in that sense a perfect storm that led to 62. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that that we understood it or they understood it properly at that time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's incredible when, when you think about it, right, that Mao was able, he, he was such a shrewd operator, right? It's incredible. I mean... He, after the Great Leap Forward, which is one of the stupidest catastrophes ever, uh, nonetheless, he was able within a matter of you know five or six years or however yeah. long to to come back to power. Um, let me ask you about another topic, which which comes out very nicely in the book, the the relation between India and and the United States, um, and you you can really see the way in which, of course, we now know, right, going back to the to the. Mm-hmm. what we talked about earlier right looking historically at these events we now we we with the benefit of hindsight know that in the ultimately uh when when indira was then in power india um became much more closely aligned to the soviet union right but mm-hmm. it's very interesting because you talk about the relationship with the united states and for example truman had a very difficult relationship with nehru um at, at some point he even i think blamed him for 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 losing korea for korea yeah which is extraordinary i mean mm. 
then the relations with, with Eisenhower were a little bit better, and then Kennedy plays a critical role in, in, in 62. So could you tell us a little bit about the, the ups and downs of, of this relationship? Well, it's an interesting relationship because, you know, there's, there's always been a bottom below which it has not gone, irrespective of the chemistry between leaders, which was terrible between Nixon and, and Mrs. Gandhi, for instance. Yeah. And when she visited in 71, before the, while the Bangladesh crisis was going on, before the war. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he called her names too, right? <laughs> so, yeah, Nixon tried to make small talk with her. And she told him, Mr. President, I haven't come here to make small talk and talk about the weather. You know, I mean, it was that that bad. But anyway, uh, but there was always a solid basis to that relationship. Right from the mid-50s, when Gallup started measuring, you know, which country do Indians admire most. The U.S. has never been below number three. Japan has consistently been at the top. Hmm. But the U.S. has always been around number three. So, and uh, in the... Early Cold War years, there was clearly space or a role for India between the camps, carrying messages during the Korean War, which is why Truman was so unhappy, because we had actually warned the U.S. that if they got near the Yalu, China would send their troops in and, and intervene, which Truman chose not to be, believe. Uh, uh, but... As India's relations with the U.S. deteriorated, and even at a time when relations were not particularly good, you know, the fact that there were Tibetan refugees, guerrillas coming into India from 1955-54 onwards, and that they were receiving U.S. support, I mean, that suggests that there was a level of cooperation between the intelligence services and so on, which I think was not apparent to the public. When Eisenhower came, Eisenhower decided to move away from Truman and Dulles's attitude that if you're not with us, you're against us. Eisenhower said no, it's, and Dulles had said that non-alignment is immoral. But that's not what Eisenhower actually changed that in a national security directive, uh, which accepted that non-alignment could be useful to the U.S. for strategic purposes. And I think he saw India's utility in dealing with China as our relationship with China deteriorated steadily. 1959, it all came out into the open with the Dalai Lama coming and with Cho Enlai writing a public letter describing the extent of their boundary claims. And from then on, actually, with the second Eisenhower administration, the Kennedy administration, uh, China provided some of the glue of the relationship. Mm -hmm. In the 60s, it got much more difficult. And because of the U.S. commitment to Pakistan, because Pakistan was a treaty ally, had joined Seattle and Cento in 54, 55. Right. Uh, and I think the U.S. found it much more difficult to actually balance between the two. Uh, we had warned the U.S., not to supply weapons to Pakistan, saying the, the only possible use Pakistan had for these fighter jets and other advanced weapons was against India tanks. Uh, U.S. assured us they wouldn't be used against us. They were. Yeah. And, uh, in 65, in 71. By 65, the U.S. just didn't had enough of all this and just washed their hands of it. And when the war happened between India and Pakistan in 65, 
The U.S. actually worked with the Soviets to get, allow the Soviets to host the peace conference in Tashkent and worked with the Soviets in the, in the Security Council because Johnson just didn't want to be involved with this. He had enough to do at home and uh, with, in Vietnam. Right. Yeah, Vietnam was just beginning, right? Yeah. Uh, at the personal level, he actually got along very well with Mrs. Gandhi. Quite interestingly, I mean, her first visit was actually to the U.S., not to the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, and he, he also said very, well, quite patronizingly in their joint press conference, that I'm not going to allow any harm to come to this little girl. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> was, I don't think you can get away with that these days. <laughs> no, no. It's politically incorrect, but, yes. but he, uh, but, you know, many of the promises that he made were not kept. So, on in terms of assistance and so on. But at the same time, that was also the time when we did the Green Revolution. That was done with U.S. technology and help and made India self-sufficient in wheat. We were living on U.S. wheat, literally shipped to mouth, as they, they used to say, mm -hmm. in the mid-60s. So, at the same time that the political relationship is very difficult. But I think it reached its lowest point in 1971. When Kissinger and Nixon thought that they had to stand by Pakistan and what it was doing in Bangladesh, even when the Pakistani army went in and, and literally started what can only be called genocide against its own people in East Pakistan, uh, because they thought it was a question of their credibility to the Chinese. And... Uh, so Mrs. Gandhi balanced that by signing a treaty that she had held off signing for two years with the Soviet Union, a treaty of friendship and cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, she always said that it, it did not affect our non-alignment, but I think the general impression was that it did. But she herself then worked to try, once Nixon was gone, uh, she herself tried very hard to restore the relationship with the U.S. Uh, you and in her second term, especially when she came back to power in 1980, uh, she actually shifted economic course completely from a much more socialist internal course. You know, the first time around, she had nationalized the banks, life right, insurance, yeah. etc. She she went completely the other way. Started getting advice from Tata, GRD Tata, from the big industrialists and businessmen, what to do, and went may, went out of her way to cultivate a relationship with Ronald Reagan. And that's when the real transformation began in the relationship because we, for the first time, we started talking about sensitive things, again, like uh, defense technology or defense transfers and so on. Uh, we had our ups and downs. Nuclear energy was always a difficult issue between us. But, uh, you know, if you have to date the transformation that we've seen over the decades in the relationship. Today, I think the relationship's in better shape than it's ever been before. But you have to, I think, take it back all the way to that period, to Mrs. Gandhi's second term, when she shifted economic ground domestically, her economic policy domestically. Once India decided to open up and liberalize and change her economic course drastically in 1991 with the reforms, then it became much easier. And once the Soviet Union collapsed, both of which happened simultaneously, uh, it actually became much easier to transform the relationship because both sides saw immediate congruence in various ways. 
And you see that today in terms of maritime security, in terms of the way we cooperate in, in a whole host of issues with, mm-hmm. between India and the U.S. It would have been unthinkable before. But I do want to stress that right through the basic links, you know, as I said, agriculture, for instance, I mean, we, we wouldn't be feeding ourselves and today be one of the world's, the world's greatest exporter of rice. And at the rate we're going now that Ukraine and Russia are doing this probably a week soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, this would not have been possible without what India and the U.S. did together in the late 60s, early 70s, at a time when political relations were not good. Education. These are fundamental things which, which have always prevented the relationship from actually collapsing below a certain point. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's very interesting because what, what you said, um, especially about the, the relationship when Nixon and Kissinger uh, were in town, so to speak, made me think, you know, there, there was this whole debate in the, in the US in the 50s about who lost China. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, one could say, you know, that the US for at least uh, about a decade, a decade and a half or so, in a sense, lost India, right? In that crucial mm-hmm. moment around 71, as you, as you explained. And, and actually, one of the most fascinating parts of the book is, is uh, you have a very interesting analysis of, the, of Kissinger's uh, exchanges and, and negotiation with Zhu with, uh, with Enlai. And you, you really show very persuasively that actually Kissinger was a terrible negotiator. Right? I mean, the, the, at least in this one instance, I mean, the kinds of things he was putting on the table for for very little in return mm. is astonishing. I mean, I think there's still, you know, in, 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 the, in, the, in the ether, so to speak, there's still very much a kind of hegeographic <laughs> uh, yeah. tendency to, 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 you know, to, or, or inclination, let's say, to how people mm. think about Kissinger. Well, I think his supporters would argue that there was a greater goal, which was detente with the Soviet Union and the only way to bring peace with the Soviet Union to bring salt and so mm. on, mm-hmm. was to actually show them that China was working with, with the U.S. But I think that their assumptions were flawed. They proceeded from the assumption that the U.S. was in decline yeah. and that mm-hmm. the balance of power had shifted against the U.S., which I don't think was true. And I don't think, and I think, you know, that was Cho Enlai's ability to convey an impression of strength when China was actually on the ropes yeah. and needed the U.S. in every which way for her own domestic prosperity, for her security to break out of isolation, uh, all of which to solve the biggest issue that she had, which is Taiwan, or at least to move towards a solution. And in some ways, Kissinger actually overpromised because the Taiwan Relations Act and so on actually pulled back from the promises he had made. But he, he, made, he shared intelligence on the Soviets and their troop deployments and so on. And he made commitments for the immediate present, while the Chinese offered vague assurances of we'll talk to the Vietnamese and get them to, to, to be reasonable in their talks with you on, on the withdrawals, uh, which there's no proof that they ever did, actually. <laughs> uh, in fact, the Vietnamese say it was the opposite. Mm. that the Chinese were urging them to be harder because it improved China's negotiating position with Kissinger. Interesting. Uh, so, you know... It, yeah, a smart cookie, right, the Chinese? <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, that is amazing, to play a weak hand so well. Yes. Yeah. I think there you have to hand it to them. Mm-hmm. And now that they have a strong hand, somehow they don't seem to be quite as deft. Mm. Yeah. You now have these wolf warrior diplomats. Right. Which is worrying because that suggests that... 
that the best diplomats are those who actually are fighting against all the traditional strengths. Right, are under some pressure, right, to be creative also. Yeah. That 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 brings us nicely actually to 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 this question again about China. I I I can't resist um asking you since uh Obviously, you know these matters uh, extremely well. Galwan 2020, spring of 2020, there is this clash mm-hmm. on the border. We should perhaps explain for the listeners. This is in, in, um, uh, in, in eastern Ladakh. And it actually comes to, for the first time in, in a long time, in decades, uh, there are actual casualties on both sides. First time in 45 years. Yeah, uh, exactly. First casualties due to hostile action. Yeah. Right, right. And... This, despite the fact that there were there were agreements, which I which I I gather were nonetheless respected, but uh, about not introducing firearms and so on and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty you know pretty brutal thing. Um, let let me ask you first of all, to what extent do you think that kind of thing is maybe not the minutiae of the actions themselves, but generally that policy was being directed by the Politburo itself and ultimately by Xi Jinping, or to what extent is this local commanders going off doing their own thing and, and making maybe maybe miscalculating or just um you know contingent factors on the ground which which led to this uh this particular clash you know we've had a series of escalating incidents on the border increasing severity since about 2012 2013 in depsang and so on mm-hmm. but the scale and the timing and the manner in which what happened in spring 2020 uh, happened, that could not have happened without approval at the very top. Okay. Why do I say so? Because the PLA essentially moved forward in several areas. I mean, from Depsang near the Karakoram Pass in the north of Ladakh, all the way, and then a whole series of areas all the way down to Demchok, where the Indus enters India from Tibet. And in these areas, it prevented the Indian army from patrolling where they had patrolled for many years before. And not just that, but then established a permanent presence there in strength in order to occupy permanently areas that they had never, some of which they hadn't even visited before, but which otherwise in the past they used to visit, patrol to assert their claim and then go home. And to do that on a massive scale all the way along the line in several places, that couldn't have been one individual local commander deciding to do so. Besides, the PLA is is an army which is under strict party control with political commissars. And the one thing is the idea that the party controls a gun is something like Xi Jinping and the others have always stressed right through. None of the commanders involved, by the way, in any of these actions has suffered or been removed or not been promoted. Oh, interesting. And if we were to believe that local commanders can do this, can cook up this huge, large-scale maneuver on their own, then you have to believe that PLA commanders can fire nuclear weapons when it suits them, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that we're all at real risk. I, I don't believe so. I I honestly believe that this this like previous major incidents, whether it's Doklam and have to have been cleared at certain at very at the very top, especially for this scale. Also, notice 
what China did after this, if it had been a mistake or a local initiative. They could have then pulled back afterwards, restored the status quo. They haven't restored the status quo until today. We've had 15 rounds of military talks. Right. And there's no way that uh, this... And yet, they, while they might have done some partial disengagement in a few places, in the strategically important places like Depsang and Demchok, they haven't touched those. Mm-hmm. Only around Pangsong, so lake, right? Yeah. And even there, it's really a disengagement rather, rather than a restoration of the status quo, which they were committed under the earlier, the 1993 Border Peace and Tranquility Agreement to maintain. Mm-hmm. So I am much less sanguine. I think this represents a whole shift in Chinese behavior. And that, uh, therefore, one has to question the validity and, and their respect to, for the older agreements that worked while there was a basic modus vivendi between us, mm-hmm. which was that we'll maintain the status quo, we'll live with it, and we had standard operating procedures for how to deal with you know, face-offs or the presence of our troops in the same area, which both sides might claim. And there were ways, and that those worked from 19, from actually from the late 80s onwards for several decades. But this was a fundamental shift in Chinese behavior. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it's part of a broader shift in Chinese behavior, whether it's in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, you know, Senkaku, Diaoyu, wherever right. you look, Hong Kong. Chinese have been much more assertive. Also, if you look at the framing of this issue, now the Chinese frame it as a sovereignty issue, as a question of the sovereign territory of the People's Republic of China. In the past, they used to say this is a boundary dispute. It's a legacy of, of history. Of, in other words, it's not our fault. It's left over from the past. And as long as it's a dispute, it can be settled by negotiation, by give and take, by mutual accommodation. When it becomes sovereignty or sovereign territory, you can't give that away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes much harder to settle. So none of their behavior after spring 2020, to me, suggests that this was some local misguided action, which, uh, it, you know, no, I, I'm afraid I, I don't. I have not bought it in the past. I still don't buy it. I don't believe the Chinese system allows for that. So, so that, in a sense, raises the the worrying question, which is why, right now? Of course, one one could see how, in a sense, um, you know, playing up the as you, as you mentioned the the sovereignty issue could could play to the nationalist gallery at home, and God knows there is a nationalist gallery in in China. Oh yes, but it, I I get the sense, and 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 like I'd like to ask you what you think that uh, in a way the Chinese are shrewd enough to understand that. A piece of territory of questionable value in and of itself uh, up up there in the mountains is useful more in the sense that it ultimately it distracts india it 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 um it keeps India busy looking north, not looking out to the to the Indian Ocean. It also bleeds India financially because it's incredibly expensive to mm-hmm. keep all these troops up there. Um, what, what's your sense of kind of what their uh, ultimate goal well, here is? Well, you know, the why question, we can only speculate. But it seems to me that there are local tactical military reasons for what they did, you know. Okay. 
break up the front into subsectors so that India can't actually operate all along the line, dominate the roads and the infrastructure that we built, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are not enough to justify a high-level decision like this, which would lead to a complete reset of the relationship and has brought the political relationship into crisis. So for me, I would look for larger strategic reasons, uh, which include partly what you said. You know, India's maritime focus affects China and what she sees as her sea lanes, which are critical to her energy and other supplies through the Indian Ocean. So tying India up on the land, on land, on the border, uh, would might seem attractive. More than that, it could be for the last three or four years, the Chinese have been saying that India is no longer non-aligned or neutral, by which they mean that India has gone over to the dark side, to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it could be an attempt to show the U.S. that India is not much use as a counterweight to China, and to show India that the U.S. is not much use to you in your real issue, which is on the land, on the border. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. is not going to intervene in, on your behalf. Uh, of course, the actual result of what they've done is to strengthen India-U.S. ties, uh, defense and intelligence, security, etc., Right. Uh, which was predictable, but if they had already assumed that you've gone over to the dark side, then maybe you know that was a price they were willing to pay. But in order to show both sides that there are limits to how effective this is against China. Secondly, I think it might have been an attempt to show some of India's smaller neighbors, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, etc., Nepal, that you know India can barely take care of itself. So don't depend on India for your security. Come and do a deal with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that didn't work very well. India's relations with each of these neighbors today is probably better than it was three years ago, five years ago. But I would look for reasons like that. But I do. What worries me is that, you know, we are assuming complete rationality and knowledge on the Chinese side. Maybe we can't. Maybe in today's centralized system driven by a personality cult. People don't tell the truth, tell the boss the truth. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is the real worrying thought, that decisions by such a powerful state and system could be taken on the basis of of incomplete or, you know, uh, partial information, which is already massaged and to, to tell the boss what People think he wants to hear. Yeah. Potyomkin information, we might say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and that for me is the most worrying possibility. I mean, that they make strategic mistakes, we know. I mean, you mentioned greatly forward earlier, you know, that, that, that all states make mistakes. That's okay. Yeah. But if they have built a system which no longer permits rational decision making on the basis of at least some honesty in the internal reporting and assessing, uh, then we're really in trouble when it's such a powerful state as China has now become. And maybe we saw already a little bit of that in action with COVID, right? Because uh, right. uh, it's possible that the reports weren't, weren't going up the chain. Um, let, me, let me come now to, to the present. And speaking of uh, Potemkin information. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that phrase. 
India's um, stance in the in the current uh, Russia Ukraine issue is is of course understandable in the sense that for, well first of all we should we should mention for the listeners India has abstained from uh, a couple of votes at the UN and um, there's some talk about perhaps buying uh, some more Russian oil and and so on and so forth now of course that's understandable in the sense that everybody knows India depends for a lot of its uh, arms supplies. Uh, on Russia, and obviously, it's difficult to publicly censure your 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 main arms dealer, right? I mean, that's <laughs> it's an awkward it's an awkward thing to do. Um, but uh, let me ask you for for your thoughts uh, about this, because it seems to me that there is, however, a risk here for India, right? Which is that in the long run, and this comes out very strongly in in the book. You mentioned that India ultimately needs time to develop; it needs to be able to to grow to to become wealthier, to allow every Indian to ultimately develop his or her full potential. And for that, it needs peace, ultimately, right? It needs a stable, it needs a stable international environment. Mm -hmm. And is there not a risk here that India, in a certain sense, unwillingly, but nonetheless, contributes to the undermining of that by not taking uh, a stronger stand and, in a sense, facilitating the, the the transformation, perhaps, into a world in which essentially might makes right? Well, to start at the end, are we not already in a world where might makes right? I mean, the Russians are not the first people to invade another country. The proxy war that we've seen in the Ukraine has been going on for several years. Uh, You know, there's a lot of talk of norms and so on. But frankly, I find that a bit, uh, maybe that's too strong a word. I, I find that naive, actually. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't call it hypocritical, but uh, because the norms seem to be invoked only when, you know, against other people. They don't seem to actually guide state behavior in today's world and haven't for some time. But that apart, India has tried very hard to try and diversify her sources of arms imports. And if the, the Russians accounted for something like 88% of Indian arms imports in 2002, by 2020, that was down to about 35%, Mm. uh, with 65% of India's weapons imports coming from the US and her allies, from the West, basically. Uh, But the issue is not how much we import. The issue is existing stock. And so when people use a figure of 80, 85%, I think I've seen mentioned very often in the press, what they actually mean is 85% of existing stock of major Indian military platforms are Russian in origin, mm-hmm. which is something that takes decades to actually phase out or move out of. And so long as Russia is willing and able to offer things like nuclear submarines or to co-develop and produce in India advanced weapons like the Brahmos cruise missile, uh, which the West is not, Russia will remain as an important supplier. So I think it's a more complex issue than just buying from the Russians or not buying from the Russians and what that does to, to the relationship. I, for me... I would have liked a slightly more forward-leaning Indian position on Ukraine, calling an invasion an invasion, a war a war. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, I think the abstention makes sense because neither an invasion or war nor name-calling is going to solve this problem. 
there are legitimate interests here involved, Russian, Ukrainian, and Western. I mean, the eastern borders of Ukraine are, what, less than 300 kilometers from Moscow. If Kennedy couldn't put up with Soviet medium-range missiles in Cuba, why would Putin accept that NATO missiles or troops in the Ukraine? Uh, but vice versa as well. I mean, if you look at Bratislava, Vienna, Prague, you know, capital after capital, Warsaw, these are less than 100 kilometers from the western borders of the Ukraine. So a Russian presence there obviously would be regarded as threatening. And Berlin is probably about 300 kilometers away. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, from an Indian point of view, the obvious solution is a neutral or non-aligned Ukraine. I mean, rather like Austria. Right. Uh, or Finland, Sweden. Uh, and that seems to me the logical way to go. So I would have liked an Indian position which actually did something about it. I, I noticed that it's Israel which is working today to for a ceasefire. Israel, Turkey uh, are, are actually doing the legwork. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but given the situation and the fact that, you know, Ukraine is a long way away from India. Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, there was very much more that India could have done in the circumstances. As for Asian order, you know, people say, oh, this is going to change the whole global order and so on. I, there I, I remain to be convinced. Honestly, what, what is the order? The order is based on the balance of power and on the norms. The balance of power in Asia is not going to change because of what happens in Ukraine. Either way, mm -hmm. uh, the norms, as I said, I, I hate to be cynical, the norms, we've seen them violated. They've been weaponized, actually, in the propaganda war, which is fantastic, actually, when you watch this going on today. But, uh, but I'd be much, I'm not inclined to jump to big conclusions about what the Ukraine war means for the world. Uh, I think it's, it's very important for Europe because we're seeing the birth of a new European order. But it's also proof that so long as Europe was central to world geopolitics during the Cold War, after the main fault line was there, uh, people didn't fight wars in Europe. Now you have Europeans fighting other Europeans in Europe. Mm -hmm. And because it's, it is, in that sense, peripheral to global geopolitics and to Asian geopolitics, it's interesting. If you look at the voting in the UN, most Asian countries and almost half of African countries either abstained or voted against. Right. And Israel also, right? As, I mean, Israel I, started also very, you know, yes, very quite much, neutral. Very much on but the I fence. I think yeah. given you, Israel's, look, for me, from an Indian point of view, Russia is a desirable partner, also because she's on the Eurasian continent, and India is both a continental and a maritime power. And frankly, the West is absent in Eurasia, especially after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But for India, while Russia might be a desirable partner, the US is an essential partner. There is no way we could transform India without working with the US. Right. And she's critical to our maritime security through the Indo-Pacific. So, yeah, we are between a rock and a hard place in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it seems to me that if we were to explain our interests 
to both sides. We would probably make both unhappy, but I think they would understand. Yeah. And in, th- in fact, I think I read this morning that um, uh, Australia uh, said that essentially that they well, understand. Morrison it. said he understands India's position. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, you know, the, the, the trouble is when you start expressing it in terms of principle and norms and so on, I think practical politicians understand it when you explain your interests. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the way to go about it. Ambassador Men, my final question to you to wrap up this really very, very interesting uh, conversation. You end the book uh, with some thoughts on India itself after having talked about uh, <laughs> Asia and India's place in Asia and so on and so forth. And you mentioned some challenges. One of the most interesting ones is the fact of increasing urban, urbanization and that this may lead to a certain anomie, as it were, mm-hmm. a kind of ideological drift also. Um, where do you see India going and, and how confident are you that the, the India that I think you would like to see, I mean, your sympathies are fairly clear in, in, in the conclusion, <laughs> is, the, is the India that, in fact, we, we're going to get, as it were? You know, I, one advantage of age is that you've probably seen much worse times. <laughs> and you can, and I actually find that I'm more optimistic now than I was when I was young. Okay, interesting. Despite everything that everyone says. And I know old men are supposed to say, oh, in the good old days. <laughs> right. Yeah. The good old days were not so good, because if they were, we'd have stayed there. And we did everything we could to get out of them. And certainly in India's case, if you look at the overall trajectory since independence, things have got better. Many more people lead healthier, more prosperous, better, longer lives than ever before in India. I mean, there's, there's no question. Mm-hmm. So I, I have faith. But, you know, India's strengths are not in, in the Westphalian state. India's strengths are in society, are in, 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 in Indians' minds. And what they think of India makes all the difference, because that's the India we're going to build. And that's one reason I wrote the book, because to show people that you can be ambitious for India, Look at how far we've come. And we can think big for India and do something about it. So I'm not a pessimist. I mean, yes, I know some people thought that last bit was very pessimistic. I I didn't intend it to be. I don't know if if it struck you as as being pessimistic. But, you know, I'm I'm living proof in my own life of what I've seen, how India has changed Mm -hmm. and been transformed. Yeah, no, I, I read it more as a, a hopeful warning, right, of the right, exactly. the, par- the parallels on the one hand, but also the, the great possibilities yeah. on the other. Yeah, be careful, that's it. Yeah. And think big, you know. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, that's a very good way to put it, I think. It's, it, it, especially that, that last bit of the book is, I think, a great tribute to the, to the, to the notion that ideas matter, mm-hmm. right? And, and books matter, books matter. Exactly. Um, because ultimately a country is is what it, in a sense, believes itself to be, right? It's, it's yeah. hopes and its aspirations and its, uh, its sense of where, where it would like to go. So, well... But you've really read that book. I'm <laughs> amazed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it was, it was a pleasure. As I said, it's uh, very, very, very interesting. Terrific. Well, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up there. Uh, this has been a very 
wide-ranging and really uh, very fascinating conversation. My guest today has been Ambassador Shivshankar Menon. The book is India and Asian Geopolitics, The Past, Present, published in paperback by Brookings Institution Press, with, incidentally, uh, I'll just throw that out there, a very attractive cover. Oh. <laughs> very, uh, very nice, very nice cover. Well, it's meant to, you know, it's a compass because it's meant to point a direction. It's not a map because we don't know where we're going. Right. Yeah. I was, I was, was wondering, I was wondering whether there was a particular meaning to the actual direction, but it's in the sense of mm-hmm. uh, a compass. Yes. Well, very, very apt for, for the book. Ambassador Menon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for tuning in to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, do consider subscribing and leaving a rating on whichever platform you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks very much indeed. And until next time, so long.